0: Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. We are seeing the tech monopolies both uh, deliver really strong earnings, and investors being happy with their ability to continue to grow, even in a, a softening economy. We call it a recession. Other people may not want to call it a recession, but we're in a recession. You see that with. Uh, Amazon announcing that they cut 100,000 jobs. They've already done this, not that they're planning to do this. Amazon shrank its staff by 100,000 people last quarter, Um, joining the ranks of others like Google and Microsoft. And Apple said it's going to slow down hiring. Facebook is going to slow down hiring new engineers. Shopify is laying off a thousand employees. Oracle is reducing its headcount by thousands and plans to save a billion dollars in employee costs for the year itself. So you're seeing big tech of all sorts get out in front of this, um, slow down hiring, if not actually laying people off. And the tally here from this article is over 28,000 tech workers at more than 150 companies have already been fired, not even including you know, the signaling of, of additional tightening, less hiring or coming layoffs uh, that have been announced just, you know, in, in the past couple weeks here with, with earnings season. Already you've had 28,000 tech workers fired um, just in this year itself, right? One of the funny stories in all of this was, was this story about Zuckerberg in an all-hands meeting just in the past couple weeks here. A frustrated Mark Zuckerberg paused during his weekly Q&A, uh, with Meta Platforms employees. He'd just gotten through warning everyone about the punishing downturn he saw coming. He thinks the economy is headed for one of the worst downturns that we've seen in recent history. And then talked about how they're uh, freezing hiring in many areas, how TikTok um, is making tremendous gains against Facebook and Meta. They have a lot of work in front of them to regain ground from TikTok and yada, yada. And, you know, Apple squeezing them on the ads and all these things, right? So Zuckerberg is not painting a pretty picture uh, at their all hands meeting. And so poor Gary, well, no, I guess not poor, poor Gary did this to himself. But apparently the first question that Zuckerberg got, right, all hands, you know, anyone can ask Zuckerberg uh, a question. So the first question uh, is from this guy named Gary. He goes, hi, hi there. I'm Gary, and I'm located in Chicago. His question was, would meta Meta days, Facebook days, right? Uh, these are extra days off that they introduced during the pandemic. He goes, uh, would meta days continue in 2023? <laughs> uh, right? Zuckerberg, guys, we're in deep, deep doo-doo. We got a... Batten down the hatches. We got to grind it out. Can't hire. We got competitors coming after us. Gary says, "So, Zuck, you know about those extra days off? Like, you think those are gonna? You think we're still gonna have those?" Zuckerberg appeared visibly frustrated, (laughs) and he goes, "Given my tone and the rest of the Q and A, you can probably imagine what my reaction to this question is." Zuckerberg said. Oh, Gary. What were you thinking, Gary? Well, okay. So to Gary's, in Gary's defense, um, apparently the questions were pre-recorded. So Gary did not have the context Then Zuckerberg was going to open the meeting and say, yeah, hell is freezing over. You know, you, you kind of need to wonder, well, what, what are, the, what are the, the, the Facebook employees who who said, well, what questions should we give our our fearless leader Zuckerberg. Yeah, you know, let's give him the Gary question. Let's see. You know, I, maybe they were having some fun with him, right? Because these are all pre-recorded questions, and they decided to a not only play this one at all, but b play that one first. <laughs> I, I actually put the blame on the on whoever was kind of coordinating uh, this this all hands kind of uh, orchestration of questions from from the employees. But anyway, probably to no surprise, shortly after that Q and A ended. Facebook no longer has canceled entirely their their meta days, uh, and those are gone. So um, I thought it just it's just one it helps bring some color. You've had a lot of these cuts become more publicized. You've seen it somewhat widespread across you know all of the ma- pretty much all of the major tech players. They see the downturn, and uh, you know, they like the VCs who have signaled to their. Startup portfolios to, to do something similar, um, rein in costs and hunker down for a tough couple of years. The tech monopolies are actually, that said, yes, they're trimming costs, but they're in a much better position to, to really lean in and invest in growth in these downturn times, which we saw, uh, we saw in spades in spring and summer of 2020. Right. You had the big tech monopolies say, hey, we're we're leaning into this. We're going to continue to invest. So even though you see them trimming costs in in areas on kind of headcount, I still think you're going to see these tech monopolies continue to invest in growth in other ways um, or invest in headcount in other parts of their business where some of their smaller competitors are not able to. That's the benefit of being a large, a large player. Having the capital, having the resources, and having that dominance, you know, going into a downturn. Jeff Bezos got divorced. We all know that, right? But do you actually know the story behind why he got divorced? And would you believe me if I said it was actually because of the Saudis? So let's go kind of way back time machine here. You remember that Washington Post reporter, his name was Khashoggi, kind of looking into the kingdom's. Dirty secrets. The royals and, and and the powers that be in Saudi Arabia were not happy about this reporter snooping around. And lo and behold, Khashoggi dies by guess who? Yeah, the Saudis. Huge uproar. Everyone's hatting, you know, in the US, not happy about it. What are we gonna do? Here's the crazy thing: it actually doesn't stop there. So at some point in time. After all of that, when did that happen? Khashoggi was killed in October of 2018. Fast forward to early 2019, when all the stuff comes out, right? Like Jeff Bezos is like, hey, someone's trying to blackmail me. They're trying to, you know, put nude photos of myself, like selfies Bezos had taken, whatever. Um, and put them on the internet. Don't let me be extorted. Kind of riling everyone up against this group that had gotten, you know, had gotten into Jeff Bezos's text messages, clearly, or you know, gotten to someone's phone that had these photos of Jaffer that he was texting these things to. Right? See, how in the world would someone like get that information? How would someone like hack into Jeff Bezos's phone? Jeff Bezos this time he might've been the richest person in the world and like get this information and then, and then try and blackmail him, that's their plan, right? And then it comes out that Jeff was actually having an affair and he was actually having an affair with the wife of the co-CEO of WME. You ever seen that um, show called Entourage? You know Ari in the show? So Ari is actually based after a real guy That guy is Ari Emanuel. Ari Emanuel is the other co-CEO of WME, William Morris Endeavor. It's one of, if not the biggest kind of talent agency in the world. They've got like Silver Lake money. They, I think they still own the UFC. Um, You know, these guys are major players in the world of Hollywood and entertainment and all that stuff, right? So it's literally Ari Emanuel's, Ari from Entourage, like his partner, this guy Patrick. I've met Patrick. Nice guy. It's his wife that Jeff Bezos is having an affair with. Presumably, that's where the photos came from that, you know, they were then trying to blackmail Jeff with. What came out is that, like, he's flying her around on private jets and all this crazy stuff behind Patrick's back and behind Jeff's wife's back and having this affair and all this kind of stuff. Right. Jeff gets a divorce, tens of billions of dollars go to the wife, like all this media. Right. Like, I think probably the most expensive divorce in history. But how did they get that information? Here come the Saudis. Apparently, the, the like, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who's basically the king, but the king's still alive. But, you know, it's like the guy is going to inherit the throne. That guy was WhatsApping with Jeff Bezos. And he sent him a video or like an image, You know, something right on WhatsApp. It, it downloads the thing to your phone. So... Right. When all of this happened, when Jeff Bezos, like all this information leaked, you know, apparently his, his security team naturally like le- leapt into motion with like, oh my God, we got, you know, who's on your phone, what's happening? How did they get this information? Jeff's like, what, how did they get this information? I got a whole security team. Then they started to look at his phone and they said, wow, it was after like you downloaded this thing off of WhatsApp. And then, and then they could see the traffic and all the outgoing messages spike through the roof. And guess who sent him the thing that downloaded onto Jeff's phone that then put basically hacked into his phone, you know, put this bug there that then sent all of his messages to the Saudis. It was the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. And then they pilfered through all of his messages and then found you know that he was having an affair and found all these messages and then they actually sold that to this other group in the US right and that and then that's the group that then tried to blackmail Jeff and you know actually leaked the whole stories but the saudis didn't want it directly mapped back to them right they want to be like oh well saudi arabia's hacked his phone and <laughs> and is blackmailing jeff bezos right so they they kind of put another layer of obfuscation into place gave it to this other guy uh which you go find i don't know his name and all this stuff and um and that's how this happened it was actually because of the saudis um crazy crazy stuff there's a whole other world um at the very 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 upper echelon of money and uh, you know, this was just one little, one little peek behind the curtain of how they play the game. So let's revisit some of the grocery analysis. We talked a lot about grocery in the throes of COVID. Haven't talked about it in a little bit. You know, what's interesting is, so there's uh, a recent report that came out comparing how much adoption the grocers, the actual retailers, apps have gotten. Uh, looking at Kroger versus Albertsons versus Publix and ShopRite, H-E-B, right? All these guys. And then, but you know, what they actually did not analyze was how does that compare against Instacart and Walmart, which is kind of interesting why they would not put Walmart in the analysis. You know, a couple of these grocers have also announced their own marketplace initiatives and And then some of those marketplace initiatives have actually gone away kroger's the leader in this comparison followed by albertson's and then if you look more recently a hold which owns food lion and stop and shop and fresh direct which is on my other chart uh and we helped actually helped a hold in in the acquisition of fresh direct those are your top three but then you know the the number four five six player are. Are, are from there, you know, somewhat similar in ranking. What this chart doesn't include is looking at Instacart, Walmart, Shipped, Fresh Direct and Peapod, also uh, both owned by hold. And they also don't have Amazon Fresh and Whole Foods in here. So it's, both of these charts are kind of, you know, it's, it's selective. Like what are you actually comparing? It's not really apples to apples. Main takeaways, though, are digital adoption of ordering your groceries through an app or online is growing. Kind of a no brainer. Delivery and pickup, a huge component of that. How can you provide that convenience uh, as a part of the experience and actually actually pick up during particularly during covid? Pickup was the thing that actually had Walmart's app explode in terms of downloads. It was grocery pickup uh, or just pickup in general for Walmart. So, but grocery being the the really big area where customers didn't want to go into the store, they needed groceries. And during COVID, Hey, Walmart, we're now, we'll now let you do pickup for your groceries and just you know sit in your car and groceries will be brought out to you. That was actually, I think, probably the biggest driver of adoption for the Walmart app. We had videos on this where you saw Walmart's app just at the top of the download list and huge growth in e-commerce. And a big part of that, if you remember what they did in the app, is they kind of broke out the grocery part from the workflow and really accelerated the ability to do pickup uh, for groceries. So... Very rapidly changing environment. You've seen, you know, Kroger go into Florida with Okado, which is um, really purely a delivery model. No stores. Publix is huge in um, in Florida. It's where they're headquartered. And so Kroger's trying to go into Florida, but now in a kind of basically purely like a dark store type of model. Okado out of the UK um, has a lot of these kind of automation technologies. Um, you've seen a hold invest in similar technologies, and then you've seen the, the actual flavor of marketplace also come onto this, right? How could you broaden that, that product catalog and offer other products, uh, natural and specialty products, um, other products that maybe you're not going to get from the store and, um, and allow those to be delivered. We've seen Amazon's actually put the brakes on a lot of the Amazon retail push. Uh, which was all the rave over the past couple of years, yes, they have Whole Foods, obviously, but the you know a lot of the physical Amazon uh, rollout has actually been paused or or is actually uh, shuttering some of those stores. Also another very interesting dynamic in all of this. So going back to this article, they ranked the grocery store's ability in these four areas: coupons, loyalty and rewards, inventory, price check, and cart. But that means curbside pickup, right? Those three would actually be to me the biggest ones. Curbside pickup actually showing that a majority of these players are not doing so well there. And again, based upon the Walmart story, that's that's a huge uh driver. Um, loyalty makes sense. You actually spend a lot of money on groceries. Um, those rewards programs are a huge driver, um, particularly in these, you know, uh recurring high repeat customer markets. This is, for in in large part, linear competition. Albertsons had tried to create a marketplace and then they shuttered it, kind of went away. Kroger has announced a marketplace. A Hold has announced a marketplace, right? So all three of these leading players here have all announced marketplace initiatives. They're all somewhat nascent. Um, so I don't think that's really the, the difference maker here. And how they view Marketplace is different than how Instacart views Marketplace. Instacart is just connecting you to different retailers. They're just intermediating this right here. Instacart hates this chart, which is just people using the actual grocery stores app rather than Instacart. And I think loyalty is probably one of the biggest hooks that those apps can do to say, hey, order through my app and you're going to get the loyalty. But if you order through Instacart, you don't. I mean, you got to have curbside pickup figured out if, if you really want to compete with Instacart. Instacart's business model is challenged because they don't actually hold the inventory, right? Like Instacart's ability to actually make money. That's why you've seen Instacart move more into trying to make money on the ads and then go around to the suppliers, which makes sense because they really haven't been able to make money on the actual purchasing of groceries because they don't actually hold the inventory in such a low margin business. In the early days of Instacart, they're actually tacking on uh, actually increasing the price of the goods that you'd buy on Instacart versus if you just went to the store and they were making margin there, that's all gone away. They got into some trouble for that. And so it's very, very difficult for them to make actually make any money in, in, in this process. Hence hiring all these executives away from Facebook, Um, And going really heavy into ads. There's actually a lot of money in that. Uh, These suppliers want to be able to influence consumers purchasing decisions at the point of sale. Um, And who could better do that than Instacart and do that across all these different grocers? which is interesting because that actually dovetails with this other Amazon initiative here, which Amazon just rolled out. Even though Amazon's put a pause on really kind of rolling out Fresh and Amazon Go and all these things, they've just launched this, uh, they call it Data Platform for Physical Store Suppliers. Amazon has introduced an analytics tool that allows CPGs to track shopper interest in products they sell in Amazon Go and Amazon Fresh stores equipped with their frictionless, I think they call it just walk out technology. The new service known as Store Analytics will provide suppliers with aggregated and anonymized insights uh, Yep, collected by Amazon's Just Walkout and Dashcart systems about how customers interact with items and whether they purchase them. So what does this mean? It's, it's more than just saying, hey, like, what products are people buying? And then give me some sense of location. And so I kind of look at demographics and and all that kind of stuff, right? They're trying to go a level deeper with this. Brands will be able to know the percentage of people who take a product off the shelf and then buy it. Okay. Interesting. Like you take it off the shelf and then you don't buy it. I guess some people do that. With Amazon Go, you really have to put it back. Uh, Otherwise they charge you if you don't put it back in the same place, which helps the grocery, you know, grocery stores have a lot of money they lose just in terms of lossage right you you take yogurt you don't put it back goes bad you gotta throw it out i think it's like three percent of lossage which in a low margin business is is a big deal but not only do they buy it in the store or do they buy it online on amazon.com that's interesting right so you're kind of hooking the in-store experience with the digital experience see how well they can actually deliver on that premise but It's an interesting concept. Providing greater greater kind of connectivity if you're doing ads in the store um, and then mapping back those metrics. I think it's interesting, right? It's it's new, this is nascent, but um, how can you bring more data to the in-store shopping experience? How can you kind of connect the loop back to what you're buying digitally, right? Especially now with more and more people using digital apps, uh, whether it's Instacart, or now more and more of the the grocery store's actual apps. What's actually a disruptive play in all of this? Um, I think, I do think the the automation um, and these kind of like micro warehouses, automated kind of like MFCs, like micro fulfillment centers, that can put product close to the customer, Um, and have a very low cost to serve, particularly when you look at more suburban areas and geographies uh, that aren't as high density. I think you're starting to see, I mean, the verdict is still out, but Kroger's made a big play in Florida. That is a way the technology is completely kind of reinventing how you sell groceries, right? It's more than just like an app or a marketplace, right? It's actually kind of an end-to-end supply chain shift. So I think things in that direction, to me, are really where you're going to see kind of game-changing capabilities as it relates to fresh, hyper-localized shopping, right? Um, grocery, these kinds of areas. Okay, so add this one into the into the category of we called it. We have been very skeptical of Siebel, who's running Y Combinator. And his directive to basically turn YC into a state college rather than an Ivy League school. And no, I'm not some elitist who went to an Ivy League school, did go to a fancy boarding school, but still didn't go to an Ivy League school. We never really thought that what Y Combinator was trying to do, especially with COVID and how they got so loose on the ability to just go remote and you know they weren't even having people come in person anymore and had these massive classes right just it these are super early stage businesses like how are you really going to a create the same amount of value for the business in that kind of a model you as the program b a lot of the value is also i think just being around other like-minded individuals just like university right go to college Yeah. You do the classes, but like, who did you meet there? Who are the friends you made? Who are the connections? Right. Like, I think there's a lot of value in that, just the energy um, and how it really pushes you to grind like aggressively for this 13 week program, but also maybe not get burnt out, which you can easily do when you're, when you're just, you know, working hard and you got your demo day. And if you don't, you're, you're in trouble, right? And there's other, been others that have critiquing this. I think we've been definitely one of the more vocal people to critique this shift. And now they are slashing their size. Y Combinator slashes startup accelerator class size by 40%. They're blaming it on, that's right, the economy. How does economic recession and why combinator's class size have any correlation whatsoever right like the the time horizon for these startups the problems that they're solving and and the scale that they have is so small right like get get one customer get two customers you really think that economic softening is going to change their ability to be successful if anything you could actually argue that in a time of softening, now's the time to really lean in because it's going to force people, more traditional players and incumbents in the industry to look for new ways to innovate and new ways to solve problems, right? Like when the economy is booming and everyone's gangbusters, you can't get product and everyone demand is good, right? It's like, well, no, I, I just got to try and make sure I have stuff on my shelf. But hey, now if, when there's a downturn, now you actually see people starting to lean in and be like... Oh, actually, it's not easy to get business anymore. Hmm, maybe I should go work with this startup. Maybe the startup could help get me demand, or maybe the startup could help my business, you know, operate more efficiently. Right? No, but these guys are blaming the economy, and and also it's not like they're the money that they have to to invest, right? To to seed these startups. So if you enter the program, they give you money. It's not like Y Combinator wasn't able to go close um, a new batch of of funds. Uh, because the economy is softening. These guys have a bajillion dollars. They've raised funds to invest in follow on rounds like they've got the money. And so I think this is just a cop out. um, When really what they're probably seeing is like, hmm, you know, the quality of their ability to really vet the startups and help the startups when done in a, in a model, they've never done it. They've never done it in two ways, right? They've never done it at this size and scale, and they've never done it in this like remote-only model. Two massive departures from what has made YC very, very successful over the years, and they basically took both of those things on at the same time, right? Like, huh, hmm, what's that saying? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, yeah, they did a lot of tinkering. Y Combinator doubled the number of startups it trained and funded after it shifted from in-person to remote programming in the summer of 2020. Yeah, no big deal, right? Earlier this year, 414, 414 startups were participating in the program up from 175 companies in summer of 2019. I mean, yeah, like Ivy League is better than state school sorry don't don't shoot the messenger but i'm just saying like it's an ivy league school i don't know like, why do you want to become a state school bro doesn't doesn't make any sense so we've got news that google's trying to head off um some antitrust breakup forces google has its own ad business for its own inventory right so buying ads on google.com and youtube and other actual google properties. But then they also have a business where they allow you to buy ads um, that are served on other third-party websites. And this is where they get into trouble, right? This is kind of the 1P versus 3P conundrum that you see Amazon stuck with, right? Where they have third-party sellers selling products on Amazon, and then they're also selling their own products. And the platform always self deals and gives themselves a better deal. Another example of this that Google is conflicted by is when they promote their own listings on Google.com, right, for their own properties, and then force other third parties to pay ads to be relevant um, or to be a part of that product. So you see that in a number of categories where Google's now start to just build out their own capability in like flights and hotels, for example, right? Um, or now part of shopping, and so if you want to be relevant, you now need to pay the gatekeeper, Google. But Google is going to favor its own listings, its own search results, its its own inventory, basically, over third parties. That actually, I don't think is what the regulators are clamping down on. What they're clamping down on are just the ad business for buying ads on on Google properties versus these third party properties. And it looks like Google has actually been scared by this and is proposing to split the business, that kind of third party auction business off into a separate company still under their umbrella. I guess that just means the teams can't talk anymore, even though they probably shouldn't have been talking already. It couldn't be determined whether any offer short of asset sales would satisfy the DOJ where antitrust officials have signaled a preference for deep structural changes to Google's ad tech business rather than promises to change business practices. So yeah, we're going to take this auction third-party ad business and just put that into a separate business unit. That's really just a a change to business practice and process. It's still all owned under the same umbrella. I hope that the DOJ sticks strong because ultimately if the DOJ says, hey, we want you to sell this business off google is going to do what do you think google's just gonna be like okay no google's gonna sue and not do it and take them to court and you're going to be in court for years and who knows um, how the courts will treat this right so google's trying to make a settlement and and you know this is a procedural offer of theirs so kudos to the doj for in their own weird way, zeroing in on the same theme. What is this theme? What is the only theme that we've seen stick to regulating the tech monopolies? It's producer aggression and producer abuse. When the tech monopoly takes advantage of its producers, of its suppliers, not the consumer. They're not talking about the consumer in this. They're saying, hey, Google abuses its role as both a broker and auctioneer to steer itself business at the expense of rivals. The department is preparing a lawsuit alleging that their ad tech practices are anti-competitive. Anti-competitive to who? To advertisers. And to other probably, you know, third-party auction sites, right? But they're not talking about the consumer. Like, how is the consumer disadvantaged? If, if the advertisers are getting hosed on the ad, right? Like the consumer is actually not a part of this at all, which is why I love this. It's so what we've been saying for years now. I don't even know how many years. What is it, 20? Probably five years. Um, you got to focus on the producer, not the consumer, which inherently this ad focus has nothing to do with the consumer. It's all about, producers and advertisers and all that kind of stuff. So that is great. I think they've found a good thread to focus on different thread than probably I would have focused on, but whatever it's great. We just got to, we got to do something to put these tech monopolies in check something. We haven't had any wins, any material wins in the United States. Okay. We've had wins internationally. We've highlighted them on the show. Go check out those videos. Um, Like with Australia and in India The US, nothing. I hope the DOJ sticks strong, doesn't take a settlement, and this goes to court. That's where it gets fun. That's when you know you're actually pissing off the monopoly is that they don't agree, and you go to court. This has to go to court if it really gets good. Because I think in the EU, their regulators have more power to just straight up just do do things. than the us regulators do and so if 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 this doesn't go to court i don't think the doj is really jabbing them deep enough i think that that'll be a good telltale sign if if they've really kind of hit probably not a jugular but at least like a decent sized vein or something um so we'll see this is a crazy tale of just like um excuse me what um huh I don't even know where to start on this. So I spoke to this company. I spoke to the CEO of this company. I love this company. I left that call. I was like, wow, these guys are amazing. We were doing some stuff in the hospitality space at the time. It's like, yeah, love these guys' model. The company is called Butler. And they were doing on-demand uh, room service delivery. think COVID shut down not only all the hotels, but then as the hotels started to open again, they, they, you know, they weren't at capacity. They didn't have the staffing. They just weren't doing room service. Still, like barely any hotels are doing room service, right? It's like, oh, enter Butler, right? One of my favorite things about staying in hotels, is room service. Get woke up, woken up with food. Amazing, right? Who doesn't love that? That's literally gone away at all the hotels. And, uh, I mean, it's a new company, new-ish. They were founded in... Twenty eighteen, they had raised like five, six million, five million dollars or so going into COVID. COVID hits that summer, July twenty twenty, they raised fifteen million dollars. And they're in thousands of rooms, or I think they called it keys. That was the thing. That was their thing. How many keys are we in? Like room keys do they have under like management or purview right so you'd go into these hotels they'd actually put like a little flyer in the room saying use butler to order your room service and butler would then have a network of restaurants and 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 food providers and and they're doing the fulfillment getting you the food quickly uh giving you a menu giving you you know that kind of tech-enabled room service experience, but it's not you ordering off of Uber Eats or DoorDash or these where, you know, could could take time, like your, your food options might be limited. Can you schedule the delivery? That's also another really snazzy feature of being able to have room service, like, hey, wake me up with breakfast, right? So can you bring a lot of that hotel room service experience, but do it in a way filling a gap for hotels that don't have functioning uh, restaurants or they have restaurants, but they're, they're low staffed, you know, they're not doing room service. And then there's actually a whole bunch of hotels that just didn't do room service at all. And that's actually where I think Butler started was with those uh, hotels. And then what COVID did was actually open up a whole other swath of hotels that, that, that had a, a, a higher demographic you know, a more affu- affluent customer that was willing to pay for room service and convenience. Um, but the hotel just wasn't equipped to to meet those needs. Right. So I think that was also another huge kind of like COVID benefits so here. just like, wow. Yeah. I love how this company is positioned. Kind of love the ethos of bringing this tech-enabled service. What are the other tech-enabled services that you could bring to this hospitality sector, right? There's a lot of other adjacent services that you could bolt on. Customers that pledged to deliver orders, including convenience items on the side, like chargers and shaving cream, in under 30 minutes, charged directly to their hotel bill. Awesome, right? They had their own restaurant concepts that they staffed, Maybe this is the the gotcha. Maybe this is the thing that got them, that they were doing a lot of that linearly as opposed to working with third parties. I thought they were working with some third-party restaurants as well as opposed to doing it all themselves. But this is one of those where it's just like, it doesn't make any sense. They raised another $32 million in October of 2021 and were out of business by May. Like, out of business. You raised $32 million six months before. And it's gone. On May 16th, Butler sent an email to vendors that might've been considered reassuring. We are writing to inform you that room service and catering services will continue as is. All collateral is still functional. We appreciate your loyalty to sticking with us through these times. That was May 16th. The trouble was Butler's 1,000-person workforce had been laid off three days before that. In fact, most were told that the company had been dissolved. I mean, what? You got to be kidding me. They like didn't give notice. They didn't pay severance. They owe people benefits. This is just a cluster. No notice to vendors. No communication. Just imploded. I I guess. I mean, the only thing here is. They were very linear when I thought they were more. market. I spoke to this guy, the CEO. They're much more linear than I thought they were marketplace. So they're asset heavy. They were started as a food kitchen, ghost kitchen company. So they were trying to, I guess, centralize the food production as opposed to working with like select partners in the area, which is how I would have looked to diversify that. I don't know why didn't. Anyway, um, and then they were, they weren't charging for the delivery or they were giving it away for free. And they said what they started to do at the last minute was charge for delivery when they had been giving away delivery for free, I guess. And just losing, you know, probably a negative gross margin on every one of these orders, I guess. And then we're blaming COVID. But like to me, COVID was probably one of the biggest reasons why they were successful and were able to raise this money and scale so aggressively. It's one of those stories where, I mean, it's not like I'd done deep diligence on the company, but I love the positioning company. All, you know, all the outside signals looked amazing. I mean, we didn't put any money in. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't look at a data room. I didn't do a technical analysis. But it's just one of those stories, right? Where like looks amazing on the surface, but then once you dig deeper, oh boy, yeah, your that money is gone. I mean, it's a hundred percent a management fail, just in terms of how you handled the wind down. There, none of it was managed at all. Just thing, this thing blew up clearly Poor management no board oversight right to 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 recognize that and really ask the tough questions say yeah this, this company is going to blow up or the business model is unsustainable and when you raised over 30 million dollars collectively over 40 what 7 million dollars in the span of 15 16 months you should be able to recognize the thing is sustainable or unsustainable. And if unsustainable, make changes to how the business is being operated, or also just recognize that you need an insane amount of money, something, some kind of lifeline here, right? Like there's so many ways that you could, should get out in front of this to subvert, you know, just a complete blow up where all these poor now employees out of a job are owed money, don't have benefits. These people have families, you know, that's not part of the deal. So that's not cool. Um, and there could be legal ramifications for this guy too. Woof. That's it for us today on winner take all. Thank you very much for joining us. I'll talk to you soon.